I keep calling this book, by the way, The Rise of Global Capitalism, probably because I've been poisoned by Marvel films, thinking everything in terms of heroic narrative arcs, uh, making, you're just talking about some sort of, you know, inert uh, structure, not a, not a heroic uh, character. How am I supposed to relate? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pinheaded American. I can only put things in totally personalized terms so that I can imagine myself going through that same journey because of my poisoned and totally unchallengeable narcissism. So I got to say the rise of global capitalism. Like it's the planet of the apes. Although in many ways it is, if you think about it. But yes, the making, much more boring, much more rational Marxist materialist making of global capitalism. The intro in the first chapter. Uh, already reading this book, I have a feeling I'm not going to go as forensically through it the way that I am with uh, the way that we did with Dawn of Everything. Uh, a lot of it, and that was largely because of how much of the information in that book was so fucking completely new to me and, and how little I had context for it. Uh, whereas I can already tell with this book, well, we'll see as we go, uh, that this is basically taking a story that we all kind of understand, that we all know the basic uh structure of, and certainly the major events within, and applying a, uh, a new interpretive model for it, as opposed to the, the Grab Girl book, which is trying to just blow up received ideas. This is more of like a inverting some uh, self-conceptions about stuff we already know. The main thing, from what I gather from the, the intro in the first chapter, that uh, Panich and Gidlin are doing, Pandin, we can call them, uh, keep right. Keep doing books by two dudes, one of whom is dead, uh, and died recently, for that matter. Uh, so, someone says they love me. Oh my god, I don't get enough of that. I gotta say, that's nice. Thank you. Uh, their main argument here is that you can't, you cannot conceptualize the emergence of global capitalism as a structure that uh, dominates the the world uh, if you imagine it outside of the specific state institutions of the United States. That the United States, after World War II, uh, imposed global capitalism uh, as a state project. And that is meaningful. That's conceptually uh, a significant distinction from the way a lot of people uh, imagine it, where, where capitalism is sort of flowing through the American state and then using it up and, and tossing it aside. Uh, and you know, I think I've thought, I've, I've thought in those terms breezily when I, uh, in the past, we'll see how much they're, they're going to challenge the, that, that idea. I mean, I honestly feel like we're now in a point where, and we get hit a point in like the turn of the millennium when, uh, the usefulness of, of American, uh, state institutions, uh, doesn't go away, but what does change is the incentive structures of political leaders within the United States. And I think that is why it looks a lot of way, a lot of the time, like uh, there is some sort of uh, 
native resistance to capitalism, like within the reactionary element of the United States uh, political class, because you're talking about people who in people in their positions post-war lived in a, in a case, uh, lived in a situation where it really was the case that what was good for General Motors was good for America. That the uh, that the job of expanding capitalism to an international uh, to to create an international standard that that was based on American uh, jurisprudence and and property rights that's the big thing had the benefit had the it was what 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 they're saying here is it was not just for American narrow economic interest it was in order to facilitate the creation of a uh, global trade network where American industry could thrive, i.e. get the resources it needed at the prices required to oh, do the capital development within its borders. Uh, and there was a period there, the period that everyone politically is still stuck in in their minds because our political leaders literally are almost entirely made up of people who lived through this and had their politics and their understanding of the world and their values and the, everything shaped. Uh, there was a broad-based growth that this, you know, this uh, Cold War of military overthrows and assassinations and uh, fucking gladios on one hand, but on the other hand, the hand that that, uh, Pandit are talking about, uh, the Bretton Woods system and and the gold and the international pet, uh, the uh, U.S., petrodollar after the gold standard collapses, those things, and then the institutions like the IMF that sprout off of them, those things are all battering the disparate, you know, uh, social formations of the globe into one form, which is the, the nation state ruled by its like national bourgeois connected to this world system of uh, capital circulation, where the main, uh, the drivers at both ends were American uh, industry on one hand, American manufacturing, labor on one hand, and consumption on the other. Uh, drawing resources into America to manufacture them, disip- uh, then shipping them outward and consuming them uh, domestically. And then using the, uh, the money made through that export to consume even more domestically. And that meant aligning yourself with like global capital was good for you as a politician because it put money in the pockets of your constituents. Starting with the seventies, of course, uh, the, the, the structural adjustment that begins with the Volcker shock really more than anything to discipline labor and to, uh, to stabilize the system uh, by reducing labor power in the, in the center Starts a rot that by that takes a while to kick in, but that by the turn of the century and then accelerating even more uh, rapidly afterwards, there now is global capital has actual noticeable effects. Now, of course, it always had bad effects, even when it was putting money in people's pocket. It was also stripping them of their life. It was alienating them in a way they weren't even aware of. But that's the point. It was not being processed as a political uh, material reality. It was just the spirit of the age. Now it's been materialized in a completely destroyed manufacturing sector and huge chunks of this country that are just not economically viable. And people process that as a political problem, which means that a huge problem now exists for the political and bureaucratic ruling class, like the actual planners and administrators uh, and their, uh, their, uh, elected puppets. And I think that's how, that's the only way you can explain something like the invasion of Iraq. Because now we're in a situation where having failed to, you know, establish a formal uh, empire after building and really creating a model for informal empire uh, that's another big thesis of the book so far is that the United States was an empire, but it was a new type of informal empire that took over for the formal empires of the European powers 
who showed in World War One and Two that they that in World War One really that they could not be uh, trusted with pursuing a national capitalist interest that they had to consciously at the level of politics subsume that into a global capitalist project. They couldn't do it. Europe couldn't do it. There's too much blood. There's too much soil. Only in America, where we synthesized away many of the deep uh, cultural contradictions that happened when you imposed capitalism on the, uh, the mud-bound peasants of Europe, were synthesized out by free real estate and free labor that was not categorized as human the same way that you could not escape in, in Europe. There was like a holistic conception of like a people there that meant that there was a limit to how much you could exploit one segment of them without a coalition of them, including sympathetic people in the middle who are horrified by people that they recognize as fellow citizens being exploited by capitalism. They're going to organize against you in a way that really threatens your power. In America, a lot of that, I mean, that. That conflict still was hugely powerful in America. We had the most militant labor movement. We had the most violent suppression of labor movement in the world, in the Western world, certainly. But in addition to that, a lot of that social conflict and contradiction and tension was sublimated onto uh, exploiting people who just weren't part of the equation. Which means that when capital comes to this Huge, shuddering halt in the 30s. The, the, the crisis of capitalist overproduction in a context where you don't have global markets and you don't have a global flow. You have these, these remnants of nation states, these, these remnant nation state structures directing things uh, in competition with each other while all possessing the most advanced military technology that that kind of capital concentration can sustain. Can't do it. They showed that. They almost blew up the world. Thirty, A second 30 years war. But this time America, honestly, like after the last 30 years war, America was there to take on the job and to redirect the flow of, of, of alienation. Like uh, the, the, the Westphalian settlement and the imposition of, you know, uh, Anglo-Dutch capitalism on Europe, that did not solve any of the contradictions that had led to uh, the, the Thirty Years' War and the revolts that racked the entire continent and world during the crisis of the 17th century. What it did was it gave vent to them. And the crisis we're in now is that there is no one for, to take the baton from America. And honestly, even if they did, it would have to be in the same context that America took the baton from Europe after massive destruction of capital, huge, apocalyptic destruction of capital. The difference being now the sort of world war that sort of cleared away the deadwood and cleared away all that excess uh, uh, over-accumulated capital that had caused the crisis in the 30s. Uh, that would now inevitably lead to a uh, nuclear war that would kill all life on Earth. So that's fun. But once again, we've talked about this. Who knows? But anyway, uh, Pandich proposed that the, the uh, creation of global capitalism was a project of the American state, that American state capacity created it and sustains it, and that this goes against a, uh, a mythic tradition in American historiography of the weak American state. And the thing is, is that there is truth to the, to the narrative of a weak American state in the sense that the constitutional order does make governance, actual governance, significantly more cumbersome than in other democratic countries, and that that leads to loggerheads and, and, uh, and uh, these like pools of stagnant uh, political energy that cannot be directed, and that uh, like democratic distribution of, of state 
power is actually much very weak. Like there was a big pond of human shit right behind the White House until the, almost until the Civil War because nobody wanted to fund fixing it. But the thing is, is that while that was happening, something else is happening. And this is what Pandich is really emphasizing is that the U.S. was standing up uh, a machine, a state machine capable of exercising domination over the vast majority of the most uh, uh, valuable land on the North American continent. And then being able to project that power where, where it was no longer able to actually assimilate. Because, because the United States assimilated its territory as it went, it differed and created a different structure, uh, or it branched off from European colonial projects and, and created a completely different structure to European colonialism that could then inherit power after World War II that was like sufficient to do so. Uh, because once America hits its boundaries, you know, oh, we can't, we can't take Cuba, we can't take all of Mexico, we can't take Canada. I mean, the American Manifest Destiny Project is a failed project when you consider the dreams of its founders. Like, they all imagined a United States that probably encompassed at least all of North America. And certainly for the Confederates, for the Southerners, for the ones who needed to imagine an almost uh, inexorable and eternal continuation of slavery and expansion into new territories where it wasn't occurring under American aegis, then you're talking the entire American, uh, Western Hemisphere. They didn't get there. They, could, they, 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 they tapped out. They tapped out at the, the breadth of, uh, of that middle strand of North America. But the territories surrounding them, they were able to very quickly gain something approximating a colonial relationship to. And another, and this is another place where uh, Pandich are departing from traditional narratives, not because the U.S. was looking for new markets for their goods. That is the story of America's turn towards empire after the Civil War, is that, oh no, we'd close the frontier, which meant that we did not uh, have any new markets for our uh stuff, and so we had to export them, which is also the narrative, uh, the Leninist narrative of European colonialism, that it is an exercise of uh, finding new markets for surplus to prevent the sort of overaccumulation economic crisis that is endemic to capitalism. Uh, and, and Pandich actually say that's not even true talking about Europe. It's certainly not true of the United States. Uh, that what they're really doing is they're trying to create norms. They're trying to create the sort of trade network between countries and between areas that will allow capitalism to develop broadly, which will then, of course, advantage individual capitalists within the United States. So you have a situation where there is an alliance of interests, alignment of interests between American capitalists, European capitalists, and the broader project of creating these trade networks under European rules of property, that those European concepts of property rights, transcendent of all other rights, are imposed elsewhere. That's how you trade for the stuff you need. Not so much so you can sell the stuff you have. And with the, with the weak state thing, this is not, it, it is really more than anything just a, a difference in emphasis. You're just turning the geode and looking at a different facet of it. Because for the individual capitalists, and this is why the reason that this myth exists about what colonialism was is because many of the people who were actually advocating it and proposing it and carrying it out thought that's what they were doing. That was their, uh, that was their proximate motive. But the beauty of capitalism is that it, its very nature creates out of disparate interests a unified interest. The reason that the, work, the, the bourgeois is, 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 dominates the worker, even though they're numerically inferior, is that they are able to, without trying, live in capitalism and express meaningful class 
solidarity in social or in political action. Their political action is organized around a single point in a way that the unorganized laboring classes cannot do. Their, their political action is dissipated. It's spread, absent a organized movement. And that is what we had for that brief period from the, from the 30s to the 70s. You could argue that the, uh, it's only really a live movement until the early 50s. And that, uh, that Taft-Hartley and uh, that really put a, a dagger in it. And, and of course, the, the second Red Scare culturally. But it's, it sustains, it persists. There's like, there's political, there's, there's organized working class political power that also creates working class cultural power. And I think that is the most important thing. And that is what a lot of people, this is why people get confused about like who are the elites and what is power. And they, they decide that like uh, whatever is, uh, that like whatever is considered like cosmopolitan cultural values uh, are, are necessarily being like ad, uh, advocated as part of like some conscious capitalist uh, uh, brainwashing project or something. You got a period where when you have broadly shared prosperity, thanks to this demanding, coordinated, focused political project that the American working class is able to exercise within the structure of the Democratic Party, opportunities within the economy open up to people on the bottom. And so the people who make culture are going to be literally diversified by class. So you're going to have working class people making movies, working class people being reporters and writing news, working class people uh, becoming authors, working class people creating culture, not by themselves, but as part of this class uh, coalition that produces culture. Now what we have is a situation when, because those cords have been cut, because those opportunities have been uh, erased, that everybody making everything that everyone consumes is uh, the child of the middle class, the homeowning middle class. Forget what the parents' jobs are. They didn't experience life as a member of a working class ever. This is the important part. Maybe their parents had a working class job, but they grew up first as a child on a, on a suburb with a, with a house. Uh, in living class, middle conditions, living conditions that were basically indistinguishable from their neighbors, their their friends, whose parents had white-collar jobs, PMC jobs, or whatever the fuck. And then they went to college where, you know, these uh, this worldview is, is solidified and now go out into the world to seek opportunities from the safety net provided by the post-war prosperity. And the people who succeed are the ones who can stick with it long enough or the ones who can access favors and uh, networks, which will always be the people at the top. So now we have this culture that, yes, it is uh, cut off from, from like actual struggle in this country. Its concerns are the neurotic concerns of guilt-ridden rich people, even though the people doing it might actually be precarious personally, you know, working for uh, free, freelance wages, and, but knowing that their parents were there to take. It, it, it robs uh, the arts and culture of their vocational aspect. And this is not a. This is not anyone doing a project. This is not anybody trying to stand up, like uh, uh, do uh, run interference for woke capital. It's just a uh, a value system and a order of priorities that is organized around guilt and the uh, the public uh, 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 atonement or. Uh, 
cleansing of guilt. What you don't have is the resentment. What you don't have is the anger. You can still have like anti-capitalist work, anti-capitalist satires, but they're for the most part going to come at this from a position of someone who feels guilty about their contributions to capitalism, not somebody who feels angry at their exploitation by capitalism. Now that is a different, that's a different energy and a different, has comes to different conclusions because it has different priorities. Right now, aggrievement at capitalism because so many of the cultural artifacts that we associate with global capitalism are politically are uh, considered progressive and are are actually progressive resentment is reserved entirely for white right right wing reaction which is just the the children of the same uh homeowning petty bourgeois but ones who for one reason or another have accumulated a sense of resentment rather than a sense of guilt. That's the only difference between these two groups of people. And so that means for relatively apolitical people who have not had their uh, their political... Because the thing is, most of the people that talk about politics one way or the other are, are, pref- are like our native um, sympathies are overdetermined. They have been fucking mashed into us by so many uh, overlapping uh, so many overlapping contingencies all coming together that it was never going to be any other way. And we can't really pick and choose. We're destined to be shit libs, to be pussies, or to be based. You don't really get a choice. Uh, that's why the, the, the most... Uh, unseemly spectacle you can watch is somebody trying to publicly like uh, shift sides to try to publicly like purify themselves of their previous allegiance, their instinctive allegiance to, to cringe ideas versus based ones or whatever the fuck. But the people who are coming into politics now, because culture and politics are totally inextricable and conditions keep getting worse. So people who might've thought they didn't need to worry about politics now decide that they have to pay attention. They're coming at these debates orthogonal to the sort of deeper commitments that the people fighting with them have. And then they, all they see is the thing where, okay, one side is a bunch of weepy pussies and the other side are a bunch of people who are righteously angry. And the reason that we keep having the same arguments, the same things, and it's just everyone banging their heads against each other is because we are utilizing extinct frameworks. Politics doesn't work the way it used to, but we still only have the same political structures to work with. So getting back to the book, the first chapter is a description of uh, sort of America's contribution to building uh, global capitalism uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries. So this is them going through the process whereby uh, American capitalism is built in America uh, and then exported, and how that is, at every level, a project of the state adding capacities to carry out uh, these Necessary uh, projects, because the reason I keep saying that this book is just like like shifting a perspective, seeing catching another facet, is that their insistence on the uh, centrality of the um, of state power, right, uh, as the thing that makes capitalism, uh, 
is really just a shifting of emphasis away from saying, you know, state capacity is built by capitalism. Both of them part of the greater unified truth that there is no distinguishing capitalism from the state. There is no distinguishing the nation state from its economic structure. That is a fantasy. That is the necessary, uh, that is the necessary magical incantation that the fucking English performed on the land to say that there is a distinction between the, the, they split the atom, the social atom. And they said that instead of there being one world created by God that is then lived by and for humans, there is the social world of humans, and then there is this thing called the economy. And that the economy has laws and rules that humans are bound by. Now, that is not true. That is a ideological, really a religious belief that replaced the uh, it, it replaced the unstable uh, firmament that was left by the destruction of the Catholic Church. If you once you when they they destroyed Catholicism, they left this riven land because how can you live as a Christian without a unified church? How do you mediate? different beliefs. You need a neutral space. And that neutral space is the market. And if you can't anymore know what, if God has saved you, if you're going to go to heaven or not, because God damn it, it's right there in Augustine. God knows everything. Therefore, God knows if before you were born, if you're going to hell, therefore you have no control over that. How do I live with that knowledge? Well, I can't know for sure, but gee, if Nature is favoring me. Nature is favoring me. God can't be too pissed at me, right? Why would God want his favorite to really suffer too much? You know? Now, of course, it starts off fetishizing suffering. But once ooh, once the real benefits of that free real estate kick in, because, again, this is all uh, stabilized in America. It, it, it couldn't, in England, it caused the fucking civil war and it caused a constitutional crisis that could only be resolved by bringing back the fucking king because it could not be stabilized in England yet. But at the same time that was happening, there was this huge venting of people to the U.S. who were able to stabilize that relationship by expropriating. During the crisis of the 17th century, the only Europeans who were eating good and gaining, uh, uh, gaining weight and living longer, we're in North America. Everybody else in Europe was eating each other during sieges and famines and plague uh, outbreaks. They were eating good in the neighborhood. And why? Because they weren't cheek to jowl jostling over the ability to uh, eke out a subsistence in a world where every fucking square of land had somebody's name on it, somebody who had the power to enforce their title to it, it was a bunch of people who they could easily dispossess if they wanted to because of their superior technology and the fact that they were all fucking reeling from a devastating uh, uh, biological attack, an, an, an unconscious biological warfare program that, America, that Europeans launched just by showing up. So there in that land, all of a sudden, suffering comes more remote, becomes more awful to contemplate. And what fills in is instead God favoring you by blessing you with his natural abundance. That is what nature has given you, the market, the economy. And libertarianism is just the final uh, a materialization of that spiritual politics. Because eventually, that abundance kills God. The people who are living it don't even know it, but they're killing God. And eventually God dies. We kill him. He's dead. We throw him on the pyre. 
And then we have to rebuild ourselves in a world where the material is the only reality that we can consensus, we can agree to. And so that means that the market becomes the closest thing to a supernatural force because it is the only thing that we cannot see. It is the only thing that operates outside of our will. I just watched The Devils. It was fucking awesome. Well, yeah, none of this is in the book, obviously, but I'm just saying that what seems like a, a attempt to like correct the record by, by Pandan here, I think is better understood as simply a reversal of emphasis because you can't, since you can't separate the state and the economy, you're still going to have to talk about one or the other. Like that is the challenge of living dialectically, right? Is that everything is is always both of the things you're talking about, but you can only ever at one time talk about one thing. So when you got somebody saying like capitalism builds American institutions and the American state is weak because market forces kept it that way, it's because you are focusing on this market relationship. Because, yes, this is all, all those market actors, all the robber barons and everything, they're operating in a context that is determined by state structures, obviously. But they don't talk about it that way. They don't think about it that way. They don't act that way. And nobody else does either because we're all in on it, one way or the other, consciously or subconsciously. We're all in on this fantasy. So if you want to talk about those things, you end up building a narrative that underemphasizes the state. You flip it over and you talk about the state, then the market area shrinks. But both of these things are happening at the same time. And they are not separate from one another. And that's why, like, you, you only ever really get anywhere trying to like think through things like this, like historical questions, political questions, is by trying to inhabit that space between the two poles instead of focusing on one, then building a narrative where that is the only, that the, 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 the structures within it are the determining structures. And that then uh, the other Pole is somehow uh, a falseness. It's it's like a it's 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 the devil. It's wicked. No, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Get rid of the judge. You just have to purge yourself of the instinct to rank and then judge. Like this is why I think that uh, anarchism fundamentally is wrong is because their allergy to hierarchy doesn't recognize. That hierarchy is only bad because we assign values to the ranks beyond their function. Like if you need people in an order of operations to facilitate a collective endeavor, the authority that rests with that cannot doesn't necessarily have to come from exalted social status. It can come from just examples, just the fact that it works and that there is a unified project that everyone is working towards. And they know from experience that this is the thing that works. And that's also why the state cannot be opted out of. The state has to be grasped and worked through because it is the only structure that can administer a state or that can administer an economy, self-consciously or not, of... uh, the kind of size we have. 
that is beyond subsistence. Like Grab Girl wanted to talk about how, oh, like they had all this uh these these features of uh of complex societies, but that they didn't have uh hierarchy or anything like that. And that means that you don't need a state. And it's like, well, yeah, when you have an actual connection to the environment, if and I don't mean like a spiritual one, I mean knowledge-based. I mean you have a set of understandings of the world around you, forgetting any uh, mystical connotation, that allow you to live in it, that allow you to live in the world instead of living in the fake bubble world that we create by dividing ourselves from nature. But once you're in that bubble and you live in a society where everybody is, where the, those remaining links are, they have no social reproduction. You've got basically hobbyists and cranks at the, at the margins. Then you can't just go no more state because then the whole thing crashes down. And then you have what is fundamentally would be indistinguishable from the sort of mass death that people are terrified is going to happen if capitalism isn't uh, take, got, uh, overthrown. Now, you might say that's going to happen anyway, and I might agree with you on that. But those people in the wreckage, wreckage, guess what? They're not going to all of a sudden, all together, learn uh, to reestablish those connections. They're going to still need, they're still going to have lived through their lives through the same mediating institutions and technological regimes as everybody else. They're not going to magically turn into pre-capitalist subjects, which means they're going to have to use the stuff around them, not just the technology in the physical sense, but the social technology, like the state. What does Nodders mean? What is happening here? Oh, okay, so people are nodding along. Cool. All right. That's good. Is this is this uh, is this a is this a Twitch thing or is this just something young people are saying now or is this uh, specific to the chat? Yes. Okay. Fuck me for asking. Oh, it's specific to Twitch. Okay. So. <clears throat> Pandan end their chapter talking about uh, the familiar stories of the uh, turn of the century when America's finance capitalists got their shit together and uh, for the first time created a central bank structure uh, to allow the United States to be a reserve currency. Because before that, even though the dollar was, you know, an incredibly important global currency, uh, nobody could trust it because it did not have central bank mechanisms for dealing with uh, monetary crises, which were most glaringly obvious in 1907 when a, a uh, monetary crisis was only averted because J.P. Morgan got a bunch of bankers in a room and told them they couldn't leave until they agreed to bail out uh, Wall Street. And then everyone realized it can't be up to one motherfucker to do this. So... That's when you get the movement towards central banking in America. Although our central bank structure is more, it has more fake levers of, um, of democratic accountability. It's more phonally decentralized in its structures than the European one. But that's just masking the function. And that is, I think, the best way to understand the weak state of the American 19th century is that it, was, it had plenty of capacity it just had to be motivated to use it. And for the most part, because of how little input the most miserable 
most, how little political influence and power the most miserable, the most exploited Americans had. They were either literally enslaved or they were urban, uh, uh, urban paupers who were basically politically dominated by corrupt uh, uh, political machines that were just patronage networks that had no interest in, in, in challenging uh, the state's priorities as they existed, just getting more money for specific members of their networks. And even the people who could hypothetically be the most, you know, uh, the most resilient challengers of capitalism from within, uh, the yeoman farmers, if things got too bad, they could always go somewhere else and get some more land and try again. There was always a economic escape from political crisis. So the state lay fallow where it, there was no pressure on it, but where there was real pressure on it from coordinated capital, it was building these sinews that would erupt first during the Civil War. Okay, no more fucking around. Let's borrow some money. Fuck your gold standard. We're just going to print shit. We're going to fucking win this thing. But then uh, also in the in the progressive era, when uh, the social element of that state capacity was too fallow in the face of too much working class mobilization, uh, and too much political threat. You had the populist movement. You had the, the strike waves. There needed to be some sort of uh, uh, synthesizing that. And externally, this is a key thing. You have that pressure internally. Instead of it being in conflict with the uh, the global strategy of American capitalism, there are, those motivations are aligned. Like during the uh, post Civil War era, one of the big reasons that uh, the U.S. failed to respond in any meaningful way to the crisis of the 1770s and then later the 1890s is because we were pegged to the gold standard, and the gold standard was held by the Bank of England. England imposed gold on the world, and the United States, being part of the world that wanted to trade with the world, pegged itself to gold as well, so that it could attract European investment. And so when we had these periodic crises, we could not put money into the economy <coughs> because that would have violated the gold standard. Instead, we just had we left we had a deflationary uh, economic policy that prolonged these crises. But then, turn of the century, a little bit later, we're seeing the emergence of unstable regimes in South America, the ones that replaced European colonialism. Oh no, it turns out that setting up these little tin pot dictatorships ruled by a tiny pre-capitalist elite and not allowing any kind of real political uh, uh, culture to flourish uh, doesn't create the most stable structures, politically or economically. And the United States, they weren't going to let the, the European colonialists who are slathering, slapping their chops anywhere near that, and so... There is a motivation to create these uh, concentrated capacities of state power to uh, regulate the economy, to regulate internally, uh, uh, you know, production, and also to, by gunboat and uh, by the dollar, impose property norms on Latin America first, and then once. Europeans, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they're setting up the structures that will be then used, the, 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 and sticks, the carrots and sticks that will be used after World War II to export it around the world. So that's chapter one. We'll do chapter two next week. I don't know. Uh, I'll do as long as I keep reading. I'll do at least one chapter. Like I said, I think this is going to be a little more informal. But we got up here to the creation of the Federal Reserve, right up to World War I. Uh, and during World War I is when the U.S. balance sheet shifts. 
when the U.S. goes from a debtor nation to the European powers to the creditor, specifically the bank of the allied powers during that war, uh, which inverts the entire relationship and uh, directs American state uh, capacity towards the project of uh, extending capital institutions, capitalist institutions, modeled on American property rights uh, everywhere they could. Why wasn't William Jennings Bryan ever president? Because he had his best chance was 1896. Uh, when he first uh, got the joint nomination of the Democrats and the Populists. And had the single issue of the, of the silver standard to unify the entire, uh, the entire populist coalition. Because obviously the Democrats were much more uh, tied to capital than the populists were. They were not down with a lot of the populist uh, ideas, like their nationalization regime and stuff like that. Uh, but they could agree on the, the – by, by 1896, they could largely agree on the silver standard. And that was a real – that was what stood in for uh, – that was the Medicare for all, basically, of, 18, of the 1800s. Because at the time, there was no vocabulary to talk – uh, really about you know doing fiat currency or or uh, sort of Keynesian pr- prime pump priming that FDR would do the the, the free market laissez-faire nostrums were so thoroughly embedded at the political level even though you know common people probably didn't give a shit but so what they still had to vote for Democrats and Republicans largely they still had to read the same newspapers all of which set like the I hate to use the word but Overton window about these things so. The only acceptable answer to what to do about this awful fucking economic depression that has been persisting since 1892 and which none of the the federal government has done nothing really to, to ameliorate is what if we put silver into the into the uh, stock of uh, species that we use to set the baseline for U.S. currency and pump more currency into circulation, inflate the economy, reduce the, the – because inflation reduces – uh, debt in, in in absolute terms. If you're a debtor and the currency inflates, then you owe less money in real terms than you did before. And the the mass of Amer- by this time the mass of American farmers who had supposed to been who had supposed to been this who had who were you know conceived by Jefferson as this army of totally independent uh, citizens who could exercise total political uh, control over their lives are now debt peons. And also, hey, if there's, if there's money to be given to people, they can spend it in the economy and stimulate it. And, of course, we now know that, that that's, what you, that's what a capitalist economy, if it actually wants to do something, if it wants to intervene, it can. And that's the interventions it can take to stabilize itself. But at that point, the uh, organizational capacity at the political level, at the level of unions, level of ideology even, did not... Uh, exist to seriously threaten, challenge the prerogative of unrestrained capital, which at that point completely controlled both parties. All they could do was get this broad coalition together, but it was never, it never had the cohesiveness of uh, the, the Democratic Party like in the 30s, for example. Uh, and it was Against them were posed a completely unified capitalism around McKinley. And they, you had this figure of Mark Hanna, who was uh, the political fixer who basically scouted McKinley and backed him. Uh, Karl Rove always fast, uh, imagined himself in the role of Mark Hanna to uh, George W. Bush's uh, McKinley. And he went around the country getting every single fucking newspaper uh, publisher, every uh, finance man of any level on board, not only with propaganda, but with money. Uh, Vasha Lindsay in his poem about Brian's 96 campaign said, rallying the roller tops, 
rallying the bucket shops, which is a name for like a, a like stockbroker back then. I think it was a bucket shop, and just big, big stacks of money taking around the country, and money. That's the one way absent solidarity to organize intent, and that intent was enough to uh, make Brian to the good middle class people of this country look like an unacceptably radical option. McKinley promised the full dinner pail, and he got it. And so what we got, when, we're, when, it, when it came time to, like, really reform the government towards, you know, doing things like injecting liquidity in times of economic crisis, and things like regulating securities to prevent uh, stock or runaway stock uh, speculation. Uh, it's not done under the aegis of a Brian-led broad populist movement that is, you know, and antagonistic to capitalism in some way. It was from within the two parties among sections of educated, middle, largely middle-class elites uh, who uh, college professors and uh, po- political professionals and uh, media people, journalists, uh, saying, okay, uh, we know it has to be done here. If we want to exp- keep American uh, capitalism expanding, if we want to be able to trade internationally, if we want to be able to get raw, cheap resources from Latin America, and if we want to prevent a fucking socialist revolution, then we need these new structures. And Brian ended up getting the nomination two more times, uh, but he never—he was never even close again. I think, uh, and then as a consolation prize for all of his hard work, uh, Woodrow Wilson made him Secretary of State. Uh, but then he resigned very quickly because of the, uh, the Wilson administration's bellicose foreign policy, because he was a peace candidate. He was anti-empire like a lot of the populist types were. He was also, as you'd imagine, super racist. So, yeah, Brian loses. McKinley presides over the first formal extension of American empire in the Filipino uh, the Spanish and Filipino wars. Gets popped, replaced with the, the golden boy of progressivism, Colonel Roosevelt, who presides over this new efflorescence of American power that is once again just the uh, – the, the, these uh, imagine American state capacity as like a pair of lungs. The lungs are always there. They're just either rising or falling. But that doesn't, when they're falling, it doesn't mean they're gone. It doesn't mean the capacity is gone. It doesn't mean they are inherently weak. It just means they are choosing to retract. And so in the next chapter, presumably, we're going to be talking about the interwar period, which will be very interesting because it's a time that we think of as this, like, neo-isolationism. Like, no, we're not joining the League of Nations. Uh, We're going to stay out of European business. But it's also a time when we were at our most busy invading and overthrowing governments in Latin America. I mean, in the Caribbean, of course. So that'll be interesting to talk about that. Next week. All right, folks, I'll talk. uh, Talk, folks, next week. Peace out.
I might, as I said, I might do more than a, a week next, or I might do more than a chapter. It'll basically be how much I feel like is in the chapter, and if I don't think it's enough, I'll, I'll do more. I don't actually expect anybody to actually read this book. It's just me talking about a book I read. You can if you want to. I don't care. But I, I try to to do these in such a way that it doesn't matter if you've read them or not. Because I know some people say, I wish you'd stopped with the book. I'd like to just watch them again. Honestly, you don't have to read the book. Nobody should have to read if they don't want to. My God, what kind of cruel demon would impose such a thing on people? All right. Peace.